Hello, hello, Kristen here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded before the podcast name change. If you hear any old terminology, that's why. Thank you for listening. Good day, notable women. I have a super awesome interview for you today with the amazing Missy Sturdivant. Missy is an alumna of Cedar Crest College, just like me, and always really liked her. She's a lot of fun. She's very smart, very talented, and, you know, we interact through Facebook just like most people do nowadays, and it's always fun to talk to her. It's fun to chat. And when I first announced that I was working on this little passion project of mine, she mentioned being interested in being interviewed. And I thought, great. Now I'd love to have Missy on. She's so much fun. And so she sent me her stuff to research, looked at her website, which is May Bright Group LLC. And uh, I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe Missy is doing this amazing work with the LGBTQ community in Massachusetts. It is groundbreaking. She is changing lives. Talk about impressed. I was so impressed. And I kept telling her so throughout the episode. I, I think I uh, cut most of those out. But really, really and truly, Missy is doing amazing work. And so I hope that you really enjoy this interview and hearing about what she's doing. And, and maybe it would be great in your part of the world. So really take a listen. Enjoy. Have a great time. Now let's change the world. Welcome to the Notable Woman Podcast. Today's guest is Missy May Sturdivant, director of May Bright Group LLC, an organization that works with state agencies, service providing nonprofits, businesses, schools, and communities that want to evaluate and improve the services they provide to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning LGBTQ people. Missy holds over a decade of training and facilitation experience and holds multiple degrees from Wheelock College and Cedar Crest College. Welcome, Missy. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Can you give us a little more background than uh, what I read in your beautiful bio about who you are, what you do, uh, why do you love it, and what makes you tick? I've spent most of my life in New England. I currently live in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I've always been interested in social justice. Uh, my brother, when I was a kid, had a nickname for me, which was Super Missy Freedom Fighter. And I also have a three-legged cat named Hamlet. Hamlet? That's so <laughs> cute. I think you're going to have to give us a picture of Hamlet for the show notes page. <laughs> Absolutely. That is awesome. How did you get Hamlet? So I... Um... I had an amazing cat that I actually got when I was in college at Cedar Crest named Gary. And um, he lived to the ripe old age of 16. And then he passed away. And um, I thought I would wait a little bit. Um, But then there was a really terrible thing that happened here in Massachusetts, which was we had a really unfortunate bombing when we had the Boston Marathon bombing. So um, there was one day that we had to shelter in place, and I was sitting there without a cat thinking, why would I ever go through any kind of tragic event without a cat? And so I found him that day on Pet Finder and picked him up like within the next week. I think once you have a pet, it's basically impossible to never have a pet ever again. Yeah. I, yeah, cats are mandatory. <laughs> yes, I, I got uh, my first cat. My mom always told us that she was allergic. Mom, if you're listening, we now know that was a lie. <laughs> she just didn't want a cat. So uh, I was in grad school and at UC Irvine, and one of my my colleagues, Jen Matthews, had a kit, a kitten, a tiny kitten, four weeks old, that needed a home. Still bottle feeding. This kitten was, and uh, you know, Jen had named her Honey. So she brought her to school one day. 
and I brought Honey home, and she would sit on my shoulder while I was doing my homework, and she's still here with me today, and so she is now 13. I just celebrated her adoption, you know, into my life anniversary just this week, so I'm, I'm a big cat person. We have three cats, so love them, love them, love them. <laughs> so obviously, you've been a freedom fighter from a very, very young age. And how did you first decide that social work was how you were going to practice that freedom fighting? So we both went to the same undergrad, Cedarcrest College. Um, and after that, um, I decided to take a year and do AmeriCorps. Uh, so I did AmeriCorps VISTA. I was working at a domestic violence shelter in Montana. Um, and I had an amazing supervisor there who suggested it when I was kind of telling her that I really wanted to do something around supporting LGBTQ folks. And she was like, you should think of social work because it's actually a really broad area of work. So I studied generalist social work at Wheelock College in Boston here. So generalist social work is getting a little bit of everything. So you get a little bit of clinical work. You also get a little bit of macro level work. So macro level work is more focused around system change. So writing policies, looking at structures of systems and whether they're actually um, really working well for people who are supposed to be benefiting from them. And so how did all this lead you to founding Maybright? So I had um, been working at a nonprofit that where I was doing trainings on LGBTQ best practices and identities. Um, I'd been doing that for about three years and I had a vision for how I could kind of do it differently, a little bit different on my own. So I broke away to make that happen. So one of the things that I've found is that there's actually a lot of people who would love to do this kind of work or are doing this work who actually look a lot like me. So you're really nice, white, queer, cisgender, which is another word for not transgender women. Um, and not a lot of voices of other kinds of folks who don't necessarily look like me. Uh, and I wanted to make a space where I could elevate some of those voices. So the queer activist world has actually not been super great at looking at intersections of oppression. So they've not been always really great at looking at racism and the voices of people of color and ableism and different kinds of religious identities and all those different kinds of intersecting identities. Um, and so I wanted to also take a look at the way that systems are sometimes not always supporting the intersecting of those identities as well. So I founded Maybright two years ago, and our focus is more than just doing trainings, um, because I've actually been for a really long time doing trainings and not always necessarily seeing something change. So we uh, try to make a system shift. So especially we work with larger systems such as state agencies. So one of our major clients here in Massachusetts has been the Department of Youth Services, which is um, in the area of juvenile justice, which sometimes does include youth detention. I've worked with them to um, shift their climate uh, to include a more updated policy on supporting LGBTQ youth, which has actually been held up as the model policy in the nation, which is really, really great. So we are founded on the idea that just one training is not enough, that you need some kind of shift, maybe some kind of policy. And Maybright um, is, we've had seven state agencies as our clients over the past two years. We've been able to present at national conferences about our approach and some of the work that we've done. And um, it's now just not me. I have a business putter, partner whose name is Ev, and we have a part-time employee named Tanika. Wow, you're a boss, ma'am. A boss. <laughs> I, I'm just totally 
in awe of all the little things I just jotted down to talk about. I love what you talk about. Uh, I have certainly, you know, have been in the professional work world for some time now. And there are so many trainings that we sit in. Sometimes they're computerized even now. So you just Mm -hmm. do it really, really quick. And then you have to wait until the timer finishes until you can go to the next page. And then you do it really quick. And then you have to wait for the timer. And obviously, that's not the point of the training. But, you know, that's unfortunately, I wouldn't say I've done this. I've done this. But, um, you know, I think that it's great that you're talking about uh, not just doing those trainings, but shifting how people think. I think that's amazing. So seven state agencies, may I ask, uh, what, what are they? <laughs> so DYS is one of them. They've, they've kind of been our, our champions. So they've been the ones who have worked the most with us. I actually started working with them when I was at that nonprofit. So I've actually been working with them for about four years now. So they're the farthest along. We've also been doing work with um, the Department of Mental Health here, probation services, the Bureau of Substance Abuse Services. Um, yeah lots of folks. Well, that's really awesome. I'd love to dive into this a little bit more. So someone comes to you and they say, okay, we know we're doing this wrong, but we don't want to. We want to do it right. What's your first step working with them? So they oftentimes don't necessarily know that they're doing something wrong. <laughs> I was so hopeful that they did. Okay. Okay. All right. So yeah. I mean, the tricky me thing is you don't know what you don't know. And so one of the first things, whenever possible, like if we're working in a vacuum and they will let us do the work the way we want to is we'll do an assessment. So we'll take a look at what are, um, what's the level of knowledge uh, in with your employees, especially folks who are providing services around cultural competency around LGBTQ identities. And most importantly, we try to help them measure what the level of confidence is for working with the population of LGBTQ people. We also find out maybe there's been some folks who have tried to, on their own, do some kind of initiative for um, educating their peers about LGBTQ identities. And so then we can find out what went well, what kind of lessons can we learn for when we're trying to do this on a more wider system-wide approach. Uh, then we also, so we take that data and we show it back to them so that then they do know that there are is usually some kind of area of growth that people need, or at least the staff are oftentimes really looking for some kind of support. So they want some training, they want some support. So then we start looking at what policies they have in place. Uh, so I will read every single policy that an agency will give me, and I love it, and I will help them write new policies, I'll research if there's similar folks who have already written policies and is there language that we can use to craft new policies with them. And then we start to go into trainings. So we have found that works really well is if you train from the top down. So you get some buy-in from the folks who are all the way at the top and you get them to admit that they don't necessarily know everything and that they need support. And then uh, we go down to the next folks and then all the way down. So for example, the Department of Youth Services, we trained all the way from the commissioner at the very top to the cooks and chefs who are making food for kids in in detention programs um, and maintenance workers, like all the folks that aren't necessarily having a lot of uh, face-to-face interactions with youth necessarily uh, and recognizing that if we're talking about shifting climate, we need to involve everybody. Awesome. Yeah. Can I tell you one more part of it? (laughs) Yes, of course you can. So here's the thing that I think is really important is that I really believe in sustainability. So if I do a training for an agency 
and then I leave, and then they have a whole bunch of new staff that come in, they're not necessarily picking up on the information, getting the support they need. So we have dreams of being able to train the trainers. So if they already have a training staff or they have people who want to train on this topic, we want to train them on how to have their own LGBTQ training that will belong to them and that we can support them in rolling out and will be available you know, for touch-ups and check-ups and things like that. But otherwise, they've got this from here on, which is really, really different. That's awesome. It's uh, a very holistic approach there. I like it. I can yeah. see how, uh, you know, certainly convincing the higher-ups that they need the training is such an important part. So not just uh, not just dealing with the folks that have the regular daily interaction, but their bosses. Uh, I think that's very smart. Now, can I ask, what is the benefit of training everybody from all the way from the top all the way to the bottom? Because... Um... It gives puts everyone on the same page. So everyone's using the same language around understanding LGBTQ identities, which is really, really tricky. Uh, it's kind of constantly evolving. And also it really is showing that it's some kind of movement. There's something that really is changing the system. So um, a lot of folks are actually waiting for some kind of permission to talk about these identities because they thought, you know, this is private or this is something I don't know how to talk about. And they've been waiting for some kind of permission to actually start the conversation. That's awesome. And I can certainly say since not being at Cedar Crest, and now I don't work in the theater world and I've been out for about five years now, I'm so out of touch with everything. And so I just don't say it. I'm like, I'm just not going to talk because I know that I don't know anymore how to not offend people. I can't even add the Q on the end of LGBTQ. <laughs> I can barely say it. I sound like, uh, you know, like I'm stumbling over it because it wasn't there when I first, you know, started saying LGBT. But now I got to add the Q. But I want to go back and talk a little bit about what was your experience founding an LLC? That's pretty awesome. That's not something everybody can do, particularly as a woman starting your own business. So when I started, I was trying to find just anything I could get my hands on where I could basically get a crash course in an MBA. <laughs> and um, it was a little tricky to find. So the most helpful thing around was there actually is a nonprofit here in Boston called the Center for Women and Enterprise. And they had a, a business boot camp um, class. So I went to like three different classes where they taught me, you know, the different kinds of um, structures that you could use for uh, starting a business how to think about finances, how to make sure that your idea actually has the p potential for making money, how to pick a name, how to do an elevator pitch, all of those kinds of things. Um, the other thing that was super important that was helpful, there's a podcast called Startup, which is all about starting a, a whole new business. So they're just really amazingly transparent. So you can see all of the struggles, like the tricky things about taking on a business partner and what kinds of things you consider. And it's kind of like online dating. <laughs> and um, it was also, however, really hard for me to find any representations of women who were trying to start businesses and also women who were trying to start businesses that weren't like giant tech companies. So anytime I tried to find something about starting a business, it was always about like people trying to make the next Twitter and things like that and trying to get um, angel investors and things like that. And I just wanted to start what they call a lifestyle company. I want to be able to make a pretty good living. I don't need to like spread across the country. I just want to make sure that I can make some difference um, in the way that I can and support people in the way that I can. Lifestyle companies I know I, that's my favorite too. 
<laughs> That's awesome. So uh, I've certainly, I remember when I was at Cedar Crest and I was, you know, I was, I knew that I was going to go into the theater and I was having a hard time looking for, uh, and obviously we're at a women's college, but I was having a hard time finding someone doing what I wanted to do, which was work in the theater and have a family at the same time. So I, I certainly understand that a lot of times it's hard to find a role model who's doing what you want to do, particularly uh, uh, when, when you want to see a woman doing it, because it is different, in my opinion. There's different challenges. It's not that we're different. We are the same. But the <laughs> challenges that we face, very different because of the perceptions of people. Like I've been presumed to be a baby maker since well before I could ever possibly have a baby but just like oh you could you could always just pop one out we got to be worried about that trying to find other representations of queer women who were starting businesses was also really hard also my business partner their name is ev identifies as gender queer so uh, i mean they actually do have an mba but it's also i'm really difficult to find people who don't necessarily identify as men or women, um, people who are non-binary or genderqueer to be able to find other representations of themselves. I cannot even begin to imagine because I could not even think of, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. <laughs> and yeah. I'm, I'm known for, you know, absolutely ridiculous associations, but I'm like, hmm, no, I don't think so. I'm going to ruminate though. And if I can think of someone, I'm going to post it. Did you ever find someone? The thing that's been really cool that is a little different is I'm now kind of that person for a lot of folks I know. So I've talked to several people about how to start a business. I have like an email that is just ready to go to forward to say, here are all the things that you need to think about. Here are all the resources that I found useful. Um, and I just share that around. That's awesome. Well, now you're my person. Yeah. If you can't find it, be it. <laughs> Excellent. That's uh, That might be your quote of the episode. <laughs> Why do you think the work that Maybright does is so important? So I think what's actually really important to recognize is that this is, I'm not the first person to do this kind of work. There's actually a ton of people who have done so much work to led to me being able to do this work. So I actually recently read an, ar an article on autostraddle.com that talked about the history of magazines for lesbians. And the oldest one was from 1946, which was way older than I was expecting. Um, so it makes me just kind of think about how much history we've lost and how much has happened to lead us to this point. And we're also in a really unique place. You know, we're Massachusetts. So sometimes people think Massachusetts is good on this topic. There is still so much that we could do here in Massachusetts. Um, but I think there are some ways that because we are in this state that people are ready to engage in this topic that maybe they aren't ready in other places. So we can in some ways be a leader on this topic and kind of um, let other states know that there is a path that's possible. So that's been really cool. Another thing that we do that I think is really important is we track data to make sure that we are making some kind of systemic change. So um, that we kind of do that ongoing as we're doing our work. So usually do it through surveys to employees to kind of talk about whether they're feeling more comfortable, whether they're holding on to the information that we, we share them. And I can really see the difference in the trainings that we're doing um, between, you know, about like five years ago when I started doing these kinds of trainings and actually getting paid for it. And now the kinds of questions that I'm seeing, the kind of comprehension that I'm seeing around understanding, for example, transgender identities is huge. So I think we are 
giving people more opportunities to figure out how they can really support LGBTQ people, which they've always kind of wanted to do, but didn't always know how to. Do you ever survey the the individuals who are receiving the services? We try to. So it depends. So right now, um, for example, with DYS, which is our major client, we're talking to them about trying to set up some listening sessions for youth and their families to talk about what kind of changes they've seen. One example of how when we did do that, we did do some for the Department of Mental Health. We did some focus groups with people who are currently engaged in their services and they gave us some feedback about what was going well and what didn't go well. Um, but it, it depends. We don't always have as easy access to people who are receiving services um, as much as we do for the folks who are giving them. I can totally understand that. Now, question, how did you come up with the name Maybright? Yes. So Missy Sturdivant is not an easily rememberable name. Oh, it's rememberable. It's definitely rememberable. I think it might just be hard to spell. It might be hard to spell. So usually people don't know how to pronounce my last name. They do remember that my name is Missy. And I also now have green glasses. So I'm usually Missy with the green glasses. So we wanted something that was recognizing my name. And my middle name is May. Um, and uh, my friends and I actually went through a whole kind of huge naming sessions where there was like post-it notes on the wall. Um, and we were trying to find some kind of visual metaphor that shows what we do. So we like to talk about how we're bringing brightness into dark places. So if you think about like knowledge, like light, we bring knowledge into places where there isn't necessarily knowledge. So it still has a touch of me. So it's got my middle name and we smush it together and also group to recognize that my goal has always been to have this, not just be myself, um, to try to make some collaborations with other folks. Right now I am the main trainer, but we have a dream of eventually have letting me step back so other folks, we can have other trainers who can be a part of this kind of work. I think it's a perfect name. I love it. It's wonderful. And I think it really does. It does uh, smash together your name and brightness. You, you talked earlier about speaking at national conferences. And then you, you talk about this desire to train more people. So what's, do you have a plan for trying to get this training out to more places besides Massachusetts? It's hard. So, I mean, some of the things that I've learned about starting a business is that there's a really hard growth period that can happen, which we're stuck in right now, where we actually get more requests for services than we can do on our own, but we don't get enough right now where we can take on a full, um, a full-time employee. So, um, so it is right now it's two part-time or two full-time employees, which is myself and Ev, and then our part-time employee and all of us do trainings. And we have dreams of being able to train other folks who can be available. But, um, we also really believe in paying people a living wage, um, and making sure that people are compensated and supported correctly. So being able to do that, um, I, we're still figuring out what that is going to look like and what that jump to the next growth level really means. Well, I am a, I'll send an angel investor your way. I don't have one actually, but if I had <laughs> one, I would send them to you. Uh, what sort of national conferences do you speak at? So we presented at the um, Philly Trans Health Conference um, to talk about the systemic change that we've been doing, especially with DYS. 
We also presented at Creating Change, which is the largest LGBTQ activist organization or activist conference. And we also presented at the National Juvenile Justice Symposium. So both in the queer world and in the juvenile justice world to just kind of talk mostly about how DYS can be held up as um, one of our model clients uh, to kind of really try to just utilize the the system that we've used to create some shift in their climate. What sort of advocacy work do you do on behalf of the LGBTQ community? So one thing that we're doing right now is we are trying to build capacity for mental health professionals. So therapists, clinicians, those kinds of folks, we want them to have a really basic understanding of how to best work with transgender clients. So especially transgender clients have a really hard time finding a therapist who gets the basics of it, who they don't feel like they have to then educate their own um, therapist on what kinds of things that they need. And also, once you've got the basics, the more advanced skills is really helpful. So when we're looking at trans folks who have been looking to transition in some way, kind of surgically or medically, um, historically, what we've done is set up that they have to go through the mental health system to access that care. So we do trainings like how to support someone in their transition without being a gatekeeper and understanding the more current um, method of being a coordinator of someone's care and involving someone in trying to work through that system that is kind of work or built to work against them, how to shift families towards acceptance, um, how to um, look at the intersections of disability and trans identities, what does trauma look like for trans folks, um, specifically, what are the best practices for transgender people of color and how do we support elders? So those, what's really great about those trainings is that I'm not actually leading all of them. So there's a lot of expertise here in the Boston area. So we build connections and collaborations with folks to offer those trainings to therapists. Misty, this is so impressive. You're so impressive. I think you should put that as your Facebook status. Hashtag so impressive. I mean, really, this is amazing. What would you say is the most challenging part of your work? So I think the most challenging part is when people don't want to engage in talking about this at all. So I've done trainings where um, nobody asks any questions. Nobody really makes eye contact with me or anything. Uh, and then those trainings are done really quickly. <laughs> uh, I actually much more prefer it when people disagree with what I'm saying, if they bring it up and challenge me, because if you could put something out there and we can have a conversation and I can listen to what are the things you're nervous about? What are the concerns you have, which are usually legitimate concerns and I can address, we can have that kind of engagement together. So what would you say is the most fulfilling part of your work? One of the most fulfilling things that I have seen happen is when we actually have a policy that gets put in place. So, for example, here in Massachusetts with the Department of Youth Services, it is now a best practice to um, possibly place a transgender youth based on their gender identity rather than their, bio than their biological sex, which is not a commonplace thing. And of course, when it comes down to finding placement, they're looking at a case-by-case -case example because that's not always the best practice for each person. Um, and you find out what is the right placement for each person. But that is pretty unheard of in other parts of the country. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Kudos again, Massachusetts. That's pretty exciting. Now, what would you say is the biggest assumption that people make about you? People think I'm younger than I am. 
I have literally walked into a, a meeting before and someone said, you're Missy Sturdivan. I was not expecting you to look like that, which I think was that they think that I'm not as old as I am. Um, I have had lots of different kinds of assumptions about my identity as well. So when you're standing up and doing a training on LGBTQ identities in front of people, they're automatically going to assume lots of different things about what your identity might be, what kinds of people you have relationships with. Uh, we also oftentimes have an anonymous question box. So I've had some really interesting questions about myself come up in there and I do not answer them because it's not about me. Um, also, I feel like, you know, I like to say that everybody has identities that are simple and everybody has identities that are complex. And for some people, their sexual orientation is simple. For some people, it's complex. For some people, their gender identity is simple. For some people, it's complex. Um, and I, I think that there are identities that are more complex than we have time for, and it would take the shift away too much from what I really would like people to focus on. Also, people sometimes assume that I'm not Christian, which I am. Fascinating stuff, lady. I think that that's, I, I think that this is often my favorite question. What is the assumption that people make about you? Because it's always very different and always very fascinating because I imagine that people who are listening have made assumptions about you. And mm -hmm. now they are corrected or surprised or any number of things. <laughs> or still don't know, which is totally fine. You don't have to know everything about everybody. Well, and why Why suddenly when you're talking about LGBTQ, do you get to know about who somebody wants to date? That's that's not something that everybody has to talk about. So why do you are you suddenly interested? I think that it's fascinating that, you know, I certainly don't look around and see my friends who are gay and bisexual and think everybody wants me because every guy I know doesn't want me. So why would I assume everyone? It's just so preposterous, the logic there that, but it, I feel like it is kind of pervasive. Yeah. We hold people to different standards. Yeah. Yes, we do on lots of different things and this one in particular. <laughs> so what is the one takeaway you want people to get from this podcast? So I find that sometimes people are really nervous to talk about LGBTQ identities because they're really nervous they're going to get it wrong. Oftentimes they're nervous they're going to be disrespectful, and it is much better for you to actually engage in it and make mistakes rather than just kind of ignore it or not bring it up at all in any kind of way. So in my activism, thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately is that the goal is not necessarily to get perfect to not um, be problematic in any kind of way, but instead get much better at apologizing and changing from there and being okay with people letting you know that you could have done better. Awesome. Excellent advice. Now, do you have a book you would love to recommend to the Notable Woman audience? Can I recommend two? Ah, I love books as many as you want. <laughs> Okay, great. So one of the books that I actually waited way too much um, into my adult life to read, should have read it much younger, was Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg, which takes a look at more of the LGBTQ kind of community. And actually more, it was gay and lesbian at that point was the way that people were really thinking about it then. More of the history in the working class in like maybe upstate New York in the 50s and 60s. And so you have some really interesting history and it has some really interesting commentary on gender. And it's also really beautifully written. Also, I'm a huge fan of anything by Alison Bechtel. I'm a huge fan of graphic novels. So she has Fun Home, which was turned into a Broadway play, which is really amazing. And um, she has a serial comic called Dykes to Watch Out For that is was 
existing for 10 years. So that's some really amazing history. So my other alma mater besides Cedar Crest is UC Irvine and Beth Malone was in Fun Home on Broadway. She's a, a UC Irvine anteater. Zot, zot. Oh, that's awesome. I got to see it before it went down and it was really, really impactful and beautiful. I'm jealous. I didn't get to see it. That was around time baby was being born. And so I was just running to as many shows as my little waddly self could get to before he arrived. <laughs> and it's been, it's been a theatrical barren place since then, but I'm glad you got to see it. Now, Missy May, how can people get in touch with you if they want to connect? So Maybright is on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can also check out our website at maybright, M-A-E-B-R-I-G-H-T dot com. My email address is easy. It's Missy, M-I-S-S-Y at Maybright. And my cat is on Facebook at Hamlet the Cat. Boom. Hamlet the Cat. <laughs> Excellent. I'll make sure I link to all that in the show notes. Missy, this has been so delightful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us, and I uh, I can't wait to hear how much everyone loves this episode. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the amazing work you're doing to lift up the stories of other women. I can't even begin to tell you how much I love everything about what Missy is doing. She decided that she wanted to work in something that she's passionate about, she pursued a graduate degree and started working in it and then realized that she wasn't doing it the way that she thought it should be done. So what did she do? She didn't whine about it. She didn't cry about it. She set out to change it. She went through the very difficult process of starting her own business. And now she is changing lives and changing the way that people think. And I am so inspired and so impressed. And I hope that you are too. And I hope this episode really gets under your skin and makes you think about how can I do this? How can I not accept what I'm seeing and change it for the better? Love it, love it, love it. Go out there, get inspired, be the change you want to see in the world. I'm going to catch you again next week.